Hey everybody, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Uh, on this episode, we're going to be discussing The Princess Bride, a cult 1987 fantasy comedy movie. Uh, I'm sure almost every one of you has seen it, but if you haven't, we do recommend watching that. It makes the discussion a lot more interesting to follow. So John, what is The Princess Bride about? You know, Mike, it's funny you should ask that, because I feel like The Princess Bride is just a little encapsulation of, well, of our friendship. Oh. When we met, <laughs> when we met, you were lost and sick, just like Fred Savage, unable to find anything meaningful to do with your life. I, like Peter Fox's grandfather, interrupted your miserable life to introduce you to a wonderful world of adventure and heroism, of noble acts and sacrifice, of gripping action and eternally resonant themes. I think right now we're in the middle of the story, when Fred Savage is still in denial about how absorbing the book and the story he's being told is. But just like the grandfather, I am quietly confident that soon you will see the brilliance of James Cameron's avatar. Until then, I'm content to gently move you in that direction, knowing that, just like the grandson in The Princess Bride, one day, when you're older, you won't mind so much when a story is just a little bit beyond your understanding. Oh, oh, sorry, John, I fell asleep. That was the most boring intro to this podcast I've ever heard. Okay, okay. Well, well, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. That is not how I remember our friendship going, John. Hey guys, welcome once again. This is This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Hello! And yeah, like we said, this week we are talking about The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride is a 1987 fantasy comedy film directed by Rob Reiner. It stars Carrie Ellis, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Chris Sarandon, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, and Christopher Guest. It was adapted by legendary screenwriter William Goldman, which I didn't know, by the way, Mike, until I looked this up, uh, from his own 1973 book, itself a fictitious abridgment of a non-existent longer book. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. I haven't read, and I've, I've heard is pretty good, but um, I feel bad that I haven't read it. Uh, the movie is set in the framing device of a grandfather, Peter Falk, reading his sick grandsons, Fred Savage, an old favorite story of his, a classic romantic fantasy about a princess who must be saved by her one true love. The movie was only a moderate success when it was released, but over the years it gained a big cult following and is, I think, now widely regarded as probably one of the most beloved sort of 80s family movies, kind of classics. For sure. Um, we'd start by talking about her history with the film. I did have a quick quote from William Goldman. Okay. Uh, again, very legendary screenwriter. He said, and, and I'll be honest, I don't know if this is about the book or the movie or both, uh, but I think it's relevant either way. He said, I've gotten more responses on The Princess Bride than on everything else I've done put together. All kinds of strange outpouring letters. Something in The Princess Bride affects people. Mm. Which is such an interesting perspective. Um, with that in mind, Mike, what's your what's your history with this movie? Dude, I don't even know. This is like... Uh 
one of those movies that I don't remember when I actually first saw it, uh, but it's been ever present mm-hmm. in my life. I mean, it's just always been there, right? Uh, whether it yeah. was a VHS or, you know, it's even like a movie that I feel like you would even see on like a, a at a camp retreat, right? As a kid, it's just one of those films that people like. I think you used the word beloved, and that's generally the sentiment that it was around it when I was a kid, and it was thus always on and. And it goes back as far as I can remember. So, uh, yeah, that's what I got. I don't know about you. Do you have a specific memory with this movie? I, I don't really. I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think we were essentially the, the perfect age for that, too. I was born in 91. You were born in 89? 90. 90. I'm not old. Oh, God dang. Well, you know, 90 is pretty close to the 80s. At <laughs> I'm any rate, dead. Uh, <laughs> we were born right around there. And, you know. That, that was enough time, right? I think it probably took about five years for it to really gain traction on home video and everything. And by the time that we were old enough to really pay attention to stuff, you know, start approaching 10 was right when the movie, you know, was really, really, really entrenched in, in the public consciousness. Yeah. Um, in that sense, I think it was a slow burn probably for a lot of people. But um, it was just a delightful movie. And it's I think you said it. It was it was kind of around everywhere it was just you would watch it all the time i can't quite decide if this is a true memory or if i'm assimilating facts about the movie into my recollection of it (laughs) because the 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 frame of the movie is that he is sick and in my head i'm convinced that this was one of those movies i would often watch when i was sick yeah so i can't decide if if that was actually true or if like i'm remembering the movie it might be both and like i'm sure i did that once or twice and then that just became etched into life my memory. Life imitates but, art, John. Life imitates yeah. art. Yeah. And but but it's also true because this is a perfect like sick at home movie. This yeah. is one of the coziest, comfiest movies I think you can watch. It's never that high of stakes. It's incredibly funny. It's incredibly endearing. Um it's just a really it's a lovely movie, I guess is the word I would use. It, it, it's so warm and affectionate and and comfortable to watch and that's always sort of been my relationship with that i've never i maybe have gone a while without thinking about it but uh whenever i watch it i'm i'm right back and and i just love it it's just a very lovable movie i would say yeah i think that's that's spot on i mean i i do not think of this movie often you know we talk about movies like in bruges blade runner you know there's these scenes that philosophically or whatever like actually creep into our minds and impact our behavior uh this is not a movie that does this but every time i watch it i get the warm and fuzzies you know it's just a yeah it's just a joy to watch and i think that is high praise especially if you think about it as what this film is trying to do is just to be that um i can think of very few movies that are as successful in their goal as small as that goal may be as this movie so uh, yeah, I love it is a great word. And also relevant for you, this is one of those movies that I think of as like, it must be a real joy showing this to new generations, to like kids and stuff, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I just can't imagine anyone of any age not responding to this movie the first time they watch it. Again, going back to that William Goldman quote, it's just, there's something affecting about it. There's mm-hmm. something just, yeah, that, that, that just really works on people, I think. So yeah, I mean, it's a really great movie. It's I will be interested how our discussion will go because 
it, it's I don't know how much I have to say about it. I guess we'll see. I do have quite a few stray thoughts. Sure. Uh, but I'm ready to, to jump in if you are. Yeah, let's do it. Let's blast this film. Sucks. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> so when we uh, talk about movies, we've, we've basically divided into a few sections of the conversation. We're going to start with what makes this movie work. Then we'll have some thoughts on maybe what holds it back. Uh, finally, some stray thoughts. And then way later in the podcast, we each have some essays we've prepared. Uh, but to start with, why does this movie work? Uh, I, I, we can go back and forth a little bit. I, I, I do want to take a brief moment to talk about the movie's director, Rob Reiner. Mm. Um, Rob Reiner, I, I think, sometimes is, is a bit underrated or a bit overlooked as a great director. In fact, I, I think because his movies, he doesn't have an overt style. You know, he's, he's not uh, uh, Scorsese bringing in all these, like, specific you know, really over-the-top camera tricks and, 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 you know, different things that just point to him as director. His movies are a little bit varied and a little bit studio fair. But, well, Mike, let me read you this run, okay? This is from, um, this yeah. is a selective filmography. I, I took a couple out, but uh, he, this is what he pulls off from, like, mid-'80s to mid-'90s. This is Spinal Tap. Jeez. Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, when Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, and The American President. Oof. I don't care if he has a strong style or not. That is an insanely good collection of movies. I right? didn't that, know that he did Misery. That's actually, that's a pretty wide breadth of uh, of genres, too. That's impressive. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and you, yeah, I mean, like I said, he's there's something about him that's kind of underrated. I think partially that's how he presents himself. He's kind of like, ah, oh, you know, I just make movies and it's fun. And and he's he seems like a re- relatively easygoing guy. He doesn't strike anyone as like an auteur. And and those movies are, like I was saying, relatively you know straightforward movies. But I just got to think he's bringing something to the table with all of that, yeah. right? Like. Like you don't you don't hit those those seven or eight movies that are all really 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 good movies, without you know at, at the very least he's amazing at picking out projects and at, and at finding things that are really going to work. And I happen to know Spinal Tap really was conceived by him too. I think he wrote many of those movies too. I'd have to check, but well, but yeah, what, I mean, what, I, I don't know. I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what's really impressive about that to me is also you know I always think of we we had a long PTA conversation with Boogie Nights where he takes his style and applies it to just varied movies, very different movies. I think what's interesting about that list, at least from a directing standpoint, is how wildly different the ask of the director is for each of those projects. Like your ask as a director in a movie, like A Few Good Men, which is essentially a play, is going to be very different in terms of angles and stuff as a mockument, than a mockumentary, right? Or then a, a, psychological thriller like misery where it's essentially all inside of one cabin. So there's just something like really interesting about that where, you know, I, I can't point to a specific style he has, but just the range of doing that as a director yeah. is, is kind of really impressive. <laughs> I don't know. I, I did not have him on my list. So I'm sitting here kind of stunned of like, how did I uh, not think about this guy? Cause he's apparently a hot. That's shot. what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He's, yeah, there's there's something about him, and, and to be fair, after the American president, he kind of took a back seat. He has a couple other projects that are, that are not, noteworthy and you've heard of, but he was never really 
making these you know relatively well-known movies i get the sense he he kind of didn't want to yeah uh, the other thing he did is his studio is the studio uh castle rock behind seinfeld yeah so i kind of also suspect that once that really hit big uh just like a lot of the other people involved with seinfeld he kind of took a back seat it was like okay well i don't need i don't need money anymore the rest of my life so uh yeah we'll just do things as they come who cares um but yeah, I mean, I, he's, he's, I just really love him because I just really love all those movies. And also for what it's worth, if you watch interviews and stuff, like I said, he's just, he just seems like a very likable down to earth person. And, sure. Yeah. Uh, and also has a couple great cameos, including he's the Jordan Belfort's father in Wolf of Wall Street, which is incredible. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. I, I just wanted to take a moment. I don't even have that much because he's not that overt director. You know, I don't necessarily have that much to talk about with him and this movie specifically. Sure. I just yeah. want to call out that this guy is, I mean, he's got to have something. And if nothing else, he just picked out all these amazing movies and executed them well enough um, where they really, really land. Uh, I don't know, Mike, what do, you, what do you have? Let's. I've been wary of, I sometimes think I dominate the conversation in the first part of the podcast. So I want to give you, I want to give you a little breathing room. Well, like, you know, the, you know, like the father or the grandfather from this movie that you so uh, acutely and astutely uh, identified with, you do talk a lot and I do mostly okay. just listen to you babble. Um, okay. So. I, I disagree with that assessment, but you know, whatever, whatever you need, buddy, keep yeah. going. That's, that's fine. I, no, I think, I think you can't get very far in talking about this movie before you just acknowledge that the script is incredible. I mean, it's witty. It's clever. Um, most of, the power of the film comes from William Goldman's script. It, it's, I have more lines from this film that I, considering how little I think about it, there are a number of lines from this that I, I think about a lot without even identifying oh, them with this yeah. movie, right? You know, I can hear the phrase inconceivable. I'm not even gonna try to do the voice, <laughs> but I can hear it in the back of my mind most days. Uh, I mean, I have, <laughs> I don't know if we've done a movie like this. Never get in a land yeah. war in Asia is a line that has actually shaped how I understand like political science and history. It is yes, legitimately something I think line. about, yeah. right? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no. So just the way that they write the characters, uh, they're all flushed out while also still being fairy tale tropes, which I do want to talk about the the fairy tale element of this because I think that's really strong too. But they do a very good job of giving them all a distinct flair. The writing really brings them to life while still kind of deeply grounding them in the role that they're playing in this made up story. Um, I wrote down a couple of lines that I just found amusing or witty, yeah. you know, probably some local fisherman out for a pleasure cruise at night through eel infested waters. <laughs> One of my, I just love it. Um, you know, the, I already said inconceivable, but the you keep using this word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Like, I've said yeah, that to people classic, a number of classic. times, right? Um, when they're planning to storm the castle and Wesley says, now, if only we had a wheelbarrow. And then the guy's like, we do have a wheelbarrow. And he says, why didn't you list that among your assets? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just think that's really funny. And then, yeah. and again, this is kind of the point I'm making. I don't think about this movie often, but it has a number of lines that have stuck with me over decades because the my name is Inigo Matoya, you killed my father, prepared to die, is a line yeah. I think about often, right? It In memes. It's iconic. And, yeah. yeah, it's iconic. And this has a number of iconic pieces to its script. So 
let me throw that to you. I don't know. The script is what stood out to me the most on the rewatch. So do you agree? Disagree? I mean, it's a, yeah, it, it's an incredible script. And I, I actually have a lot of thoughts about it as regards tone, which I think you were kind of getting to there, but, but really briefly, since you got to indulge, I also had a couple quotes and yeah. some of them, some of them are just really funny. Right. And I almost thought about doing the body Python thing where we just talked about the funny moments, but, but it's funny. It's interesting because this movie isn't necessarily silly. I mean, it is silly, but it's such a, we'll get to the tone in a second. The tone is so fascinating to me. Yeah. But at any rate, Again, uh, my think, favorite joke. I in think the, witty, oh, yeah, yeah. witty and clever more than laugh out loud. Funny is like, yeah, how I kept describing this film. Cause yeah, there aren't many scenes where I'm like rip roaring with laughter. It's not Monty Python, but there are so many quick barbs, throwaway lines that are just like, ah, that was a fun, that was a clever note you just put. So yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Sorry. Go on, go on your lines, go on with your babbling. My favorite joke in the movie is when the albino says, The bit of despair. Don't even think. <coughs> Don't even think about trying to escape. Chains of thought. Don't even think about trying to escape. But he yes. has the most normal voice yes. ever after he coughs up. It's so funny. Um, we'll get to the marriage thing later, but I mean, it's, you just have to mention that because it is so. It's so. Again, it's iconic. I have I have a question for you with that later. It's okay. thoughts, but okay. um, but it's funny because you know there's a lot of funny things, but there's also these lines like "life is pain." Anyone yeah. who says differently is selling something. Yep, that that's in this script. It is just in random stuff like that. Um, I, I John, for a second, I literally I, have that quote in my stray thoughts, and all I wrote next to it was "F and A Wesley." F and A. Yeah. Yeah, that's in I'm actually in my stray thoughts because that's where I wrote down a few quotes, but and then also like like one of the narration lines is Buttercup's emptiness consumed her. Yeah. There's stuff like that, which is just not that's not average writing, is no. what I guess I'm trying to say. Like this is this movie kind of fools you into thinking it's a little bit lowbrow or a little bit you know, family affair, maybe not that big of an effort. But like you said, it's written by one of the greatest screenwriters of all time, adapted from his own book. And that really shows. It's yeah. just, it's so phenomenal, all of the writing in the movie. Um, all of that does impact two other things I really want to talk about, if it's okay. Yeah, dive in. One, uh, probably the biggest one, and the biggest thing I wrote down is is the tone of the movie. Because mm. it is this really, really weird tone. Uh, you kind of said this already, but this movie, there's just no other movie like it. I can't think of one, right? No, yeah. And it's it's almost like a parody, but it's not. It's played straight. It's it's high fantasy. I think what what I wrote down that I finally landed on when I was trying to sort of I was trying to sort of define what this is, right? I decided it's played straight high fantasy, but the characters in the movie have modern sensibilities. Right? Yeah. Mm. So they're not talking like like characters from Arthurian legends. They're talking like kind of clever, smart people talk today. It's yeah, almost it's like good. an Aaron Sorkin rip in a way. Like you could see him doing something like this of again taking these this weird this very familiar setting, but making that little tweak to just the way people talk. Yeah. And Th suddenly it's just in, really fun. Throwing in ten or twelve walk and talks. Yeah. <laughs> You could, man, I want to see Aaron Sorkin's version of this movie now. But, <laughs> but you know, I'm just really impressed that it manages that, I guess. Yeah. Because what I wrote is this could have so easily slipped one direction or the other. If it had become too modern, too cynical, or kind of winking or overt parody, that would have been a disaster. 
if it had gone too fantasy, too naive and bland and predictable and, you know, just sounding again like Arthurian dialogue or whatever, that would have been a disaster. So it's in this strange middle thing that's carved out for itself that is totally unique. And like I said, it's just really, really lovely. It's just great to watch. And it's, it's so much fun. It's a fun world to inhabit, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, well, it, it reminds me very much. You, I mean, you said you can't think of many movies like it, but my immediate, the immediate thought that popped into my head as you were talking was Galaxy Quest, right? Where this is a film that deeply understands its genre, that it's in yeah. some ways aping, but also making a straightforward movie of that genre. Like, obviously, it doesn't have as much of the meta narrative winking of their actors put into their own show, but in real life, like it's not doing that. But it, it understands what makes a great fairy tale and largely stays true to those conventions while, like you said, still modernizing it to a way where it's not a dull affair, um, where it's not people saying these and thous and, and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, things like the, it has really perfect names for places and things, right? The the cliffs of yeah. insanity, the monsters are all <laughs> wonderful, whether it's the rodents of unusual size or, you know, the eels. Uh, it's it just, it gets very much what makes a fantastical adventure or, or a fairy tale work, which is that you yeah. have to have a bit of the unbelievable, a bit of the overtopness, the fire swamp, the bit of despair. But it also still needs to feel grounded like real people are going on a journey, right? It still needs to yeah. have the fun and playful heroic score. It still needs to have a hero wearing a mask and people don't recognize him for no one, no apparent reason, right? Um, it still needs to make you ask, aren't people the real monsters that we should be afraid of, John? Uh, but, <laughs> but no, yeah, so I, I can't say enough about that. It's weird because I feel like I'm yeah. kind of throwing that off off handed but i don't want to i really think this movie is committed to being a fairy tale it understands what a fairy tale is it understands how to modernize a fairy tale and it understands when to poke fun at fairy tales and to juggle yeah. all of that so well is a feat it's a it's an accomplishment it really is it's what makes the movie work because like you said this movie can could be boring it could be unrelatable it could be over the top very quickly in a way that makes it a an off-putting movie and it's not so i don't know if you have any thoughts there but that's maybe my number one point after the script was that fairy tale core at the center of the movie yeah no i i don't know if i have much more to say i totally agree i think the galaxy quest connection is spot on uh and you're right it just understands its own itself so well and, and you know we said that script uh that script but i do want to mention you know talking i guess talking about rob reiner that is also direction and that is also acting. Um, they they have to walk that line as well, where, again, it's a bit unusual. They're modern sort of characters, mostly, but not entirely, and in this setting, and they have to tell these jokes without being silly, and they have to... It, it's just a really weird thing to walk, and they do a great job. Yeah. Um, yeah, well... Actually, I'm, we could talk about the actors a little more in depth if you want well, to. Well, real quick on that before we move to that. I also... The commitment to that... I also think shows up in the fact that the framing element of this movie works, you know, the grandfather yeah. telling his grandson this story. I actually think that could be a train wreck if that was done too often or done poorly. But I actually mm. found myself like really enjoying the interjections. Like, is this a kissing book? Like it really captures the feeling of a kid hearing a fairy tale. And 
it's the perfect level of commitment to that bit or to that framing structure, yeah. right? And again, I think that goes back more to the directing, even to the, the script writing. He knows when to make those cuts and when to and how to build in those interjections and how strongly as the person kind of directing the flow of this movie, how strongly to stick to that framework and not veer from it. So I just want to throw that note in real quick before we move to the cast, because I think that's another thing, another compliment that should be paid to both the script, but also to the man behind the camera. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and actually, I guess, again, before we get to the cast, you, you did make me, I have another thing written, and this is kind of script, this is direction, this is editing, but it's just an extremely well-paced movie. And the reason I bring that up here is because that framing device is so key to that. I, I realized last time I was rewatching it. Yeah. Um, they're able to like just blast through exposition if they need to. They're able to do these little tricks right when you would be losing interest. If you notice, a lot of times they'll cut back to the frame story and give us a little aside. Again, kind of almost like catching your breath or get you know just reinvigorating your interest in the plot. I, one of my favorite moments is when it cuts back from the eel scene yeah. for, to the grandfather saying, she doesn't get eaten, by the way. <laughs> and he's like, what? And the grandfather says, you seem scared. I just want you to know she doesn't get eaten. That is, that's just really clever. And again, it, it keeps you engaged in the story. It keeps you, you're having this weird, it's a complicated relationship you form with the story that I think is just, it's just really, really good. And, and yeah, in general, like I said, just more general stuff it's a quick movie it's hour 35 um buttercup i noted is kidnapped within eight minutes yeah which is so fast and yep. again we're just we're just speeding towards the story as much as we can um as much as possible there's no real exposition if you notice it's all pretty baked into the to the actual action of the movie essentially every scene has some sort of action or plot element something moving us forward it's just really well constructed. And again, we keep saying, I mean, this is an incredible screenwriter. It's an incredible director. Like, th there's a reason, right? But but it's because it's so understated that you don't think of that necessarily yeah. all the time. Um, I mean, yeah. And it's also so confident. They're like, we have to go yeah. to the fire swamp, which is full of uh, sand pits and giant rats. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, you said that in the way that I should just accept that. And there's no need to explain why that exists or how that would exist. And... That's a, I mean, it's almost, it's silly to say it that way, where it's just like, I don't know yeah. if in many films that's good writing, just to be like, we're going to the fire swamp now. Just accept that that's a thing. But in this one, it is. It's, it's a confidence. It's a confidence in the genre and a confidence in their ability to sell it. And uh, I don't need more information on the fire swamps. And I don't know. I think that's that's impressive in and of itself. So Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've put it off for a second, but let's talk about the actors because, you know, I think every one of them walks this line that we were talking about with the tone really, really well. Yeah. Right? They're all a little bit winking, a little bit having fun with it, um, but they're not betraying the reality of the character. You still see this as a cohesive world, again, as opposed to something like Monty Python, yeah. where the world is falling apart at the seams everywhere you look. This movie, it's like, no, no, no. I, I can still buy this. My brain, my suspension of disbelief is still holding, but they're still doing, they're still having fun with it. They're still playing with it. They're still skirting things. They're saying stuff like the most common, what, what's the whole line? Like, uh, you know, the, you've fallen victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never fight a land war in Asia. That character in that setting would never actually say that. Yeah. But you, you kind of buy it because yeah. the, 
they're selling it really well. So, I mean, you know, just to go down the list, Carrie Elwes and um, Robin Wright are amazing. Yeah, I cannot they, see Carrie Elwes as anything besides this. Like okay. at every other movie, including Saul, I'm like, oh, it's it's Wesley. Cool. Well, like, how did how did neither of them have like neither of them had bigger careers? And I don't get it. Like, both Carrie Elwes especially. I, I think of Robin Wright as having a pretty good career, though. She did. I mean, she did, you know. and she had a renaissance, obviously, with House of Cards and stuff recently in Blade Runner 2049 but like yeah I don't know I would, if I saw this movie I'd be like up oh, Carrie Ellis is a is a heartthrob for the next two decades right and yeah other yeah, than him the, being like a big villain one. in in Psych and uh you know getting his arm caught or leg cut off and saw I don't really think much of him oh uh Robin and Men in Tights no. too but I was gonna say Robin and Men in Tights <laughs> which uh which man we gotta do that movie at some point no, do we man. I'm not sure if that movie holds Probably up not. uh it probably doesn't, but no, I've always thought the same thing. I, I would have thought as a kid, I thought he was one of the biggest stars in the world because he was in one of my favorite movies. It was so perfect in it. And yeah, it never, it never came together for like, you know, a, a lister. Cause he was always, yeah. he's always been around, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Um, well, and he's just, so it's dang. also worth noting. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, no, go ahead. When he's also just so dang charming in this movie, like he's yeah. he's the perfect level of I buy him as a farmhand. I buy him as a pirate and I buy him as the love interest. And almost all of that comes back to the fact that he has like a very understated charm. Right. Uh, yeah. a Sincerity and a likability that is natural feeling. It doesn't even really feel like he's acting very often in this movie. He's just kind of being himself and. Um, I think he's almost perfectly like cast for this movie. Almost, it's almost like the part was made for him in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which, um, I also feel that way about his role in Saul, but I digress. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, he's just he's he was one of the people who stood out the most to me. Of again, you have to have someone who who is laid back in a way, um, while still being able to convey that like the stakes for him and this love story are, are real. That I, I don't know. I, I found it the core of the movie was him and Robin Wright. So uh, that's the last thing I really want to say about him. But charming yep, man. Totally agree. Uh, which then if you if you're OK, like I think the most obvious place to go with that, then especially in the conversation of why didn't this person blow up a lot more? So Mandy Patinkin, uh, who I wouldn't have known, I had to I, if I hadn't looked it up, plays Anigo Montoya, yeah. arguably the best character in the whole movie. Yep. And what I learned looking it up is that part of part of why you haven't heard of him is because he actually has a lot of other he's extremely talented and he's done other things. He's especially apparently done a lot of musical theater and is very apparently really, really gifted at that has done a lot of that. So and, and he's done a lot of voice work, too. But, you know, coming out of this movie, he is the sort of to, to me, I don't know, he is the most fun, exciting part of the movie that's the guy i would have like i would have seen him in anything and yeah. i would have been he almost was like a han solo type or something sure. and yeah uh never i guess never really took off with that or he never really took that any other place but in this movie and, and in a way that's fun too because it's like this is just a microcosm of you know this is a one a lightning in a bottle a one moment in time with with these people doing this thing um but he's great in this movie and and like i said he he really sells that that role which is we're gonna get to a lot later because my essay is almost entirely about that character but 
Yeah, I just think he really sells that and that character's journey and everything. Yeah, um, he does. He's like, and I yeah. mean, I I actually had to Google the actor to be like, have I ever seen this guy in anything else? Apparently, he's you know one of the stars of Homeland, and I was like, oh my gosh, I see it now. Now oh, I can't sure. unsee it. Um, obviously, yeah. decades older at that point. But yeah, I think it is an interesting lightning in the bottle situation because you know I think about that with Wallace Shawn as Vizzini. Uh, Andre the Giant, you know, I wasn't big into wrestling, but this is the only kind of exposure I have to Andre the Giant. And all of them are so perfectly cast into, you know, those roles where you kind of can't imagine them ever doing it again. There is a weird justice to that almost of I haven't heard of these people since because they got cast in the perfect movie together and just had a wonderful dynamic where it's almost yeah. unrepeatable. You know, I, I love those three in particular dynamic together, you know, whether it's the rhyming yeah. and Vizzini hating it, um, just the interplay of all three of them. Yeah. So there is a weird lightning the ball element to this movie that maybe explains why a lot of these people didn't go on to do other things where it's just like maybe what why we're we confused <laughs> is that they were cast perfectly in something and we shouldn't be confused that maybe they didn't really do much more. Uh, and at least in this setting yeah. after that. Right. I, that's easy to believe. That was who I wrote down to, Andre the Giant and Wallace Shawn. Um, Wallace Shawn, I, I, I do also know from my dinner with Andre. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, and Andre the Giant, well-known you know, for wrestling and the Obey poster and everything like that. But, but you're right. I mean, these are such well-realized characters, and they're fully inhabited by these actors. And you're just there for it. And it's just... It, it's just yeah, it's really, really lovely. I love Andre the Giant, especially in this movie, that sort of <laughs> gentle giant vibe and yeah. all of the jokes and the bits. I love when um, Carrie Ellis, when when uh, Wesley is is paralyzed and he keeps getting encouragement from uh, from Fezzik. Is it Fezzik, the giant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he keeps, Fezzik keeps saying, oh, you moved your thumb. That's so great. <laughs> you must be happy. You must <laughs> and, he's be happy. Just, and he can't do anything. Uh <laughs> I just love that character, and I love and you know obviously Wallace Shawn is great. The only other actor I wanted to call out, if only because I was very surprised when I learned that this is who played him, Count Rugen is it? I think it's Rugen, uh, the Six Fingered Man is played by Christopher Guest. Oh, which is crazy. What did you know that? Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, I didn't notice uh, that. And it's actually yet another entry in Rob Reiner movies that bring in Christopher Guest for like one kind of not Christopher Guesty part and then that's it because the other one is in a few good men the doctor who um testifies I need to look this up to make sure I'm actually right but I'm pretty sure like the the doctor who testifies and is like oh I know that it wasn't poison blah 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 blah. that's also Christopher Guest which yeah you just assume because obviously you know he's a huge part of Spinal Tap and whatever so I guess you'd kind of just assume that he's just kind of friends with rob reiner and gets called in every now and then but yeah uh but yeah i mean and you know it's funny because i'm not i'm not totally sure how much i thought about that character but i do think he does a really good job so i'm 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 in you know yeah i can't let you move off of the the cast without talking about billy crystal in this movie though because i forgot about him as miracle max is another one with like iconic lines you know the i mean mostly from his wife the i'm not your witch i'm your wife which Ricky yells at me multiple times a week. Um, but, but yeah, no, him as Miracle Max is like hilarious. And it's another one of those moments where it feels like 
the modernity almost swallows up the fairy tale element where he is like yeah. very much outside of this movie. But at the same time, it's so funny that you kind of just swallow it. You kind of just take all yeah. of it. Right. And I love when he looks at Wesley and he says, I've seen worse. And, you know, he has that classic <laughs> kind of New York Jewish accent. And it's just hilarious. I don't know uh, what his wife's going on about how ever since pimp or Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence has been shot. That's hilarious. And I mean, yep. he just sells the hell out of that part. And it's such a small part. But again, he's he's so at home in a movie they probably shouldn't feel at home in. But no. written well, but acted it's so well. much fun. Yep. So much fun. So. I, I love your point there that that is that is the closest the movie comes to breaking. It does it. Yeah. It holds it. But there's a universe where that goes really wrong. And that and you're just that that scene just completely takes you out. But they managed to land it. And again, that's just really, really crazy to me. I, I love what I always remember is he's saying there's nothing better than true love. Except a good MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato, where the <laughs> lettuce is. What does he say? Like the tomatoes are really fresh. It's so perky. I love that. It's, I mean, it's classic <laughs> Billy Crystal vibes, but it's just so well transplanted into the movie. It's it's weird. Um, actually, and really quick, this is not an actor, but just continuing the line of like people that is like, wow, this person is involved with this movie. I don't know if this is gonna land for you, Mike, but the music in this movie was done by Mark Knopfler. Do you know who Mark Knopfler the is? The Mark whatever you just said? Knopfler. He's the sure. he's the lead singer and guitarist of Dire Straits. Of Dire uh, Straits. One of the best Wow, for real? You're gonna you're gonna <laughs> blaspheme Dire Straits on this podcast? No, one I'm of the blasting, best I'm only blasting you insofar as you thought I would know what any of that meant. Mark Doffler is one of the greatest guitarists of all times, and it's amazing that he did this soundtrack. And it's a good soundtrack. It's it worth is. noting. Yeah. But it's just crazy that it's like, oh, yeah, Mark Doffler did this. Cool. Um, I only have a couple other what works. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, actually, I guess I only have one. I really, really, really love physical sets with hand-drawn backdrops. This mm. could be nostalgia. This could be nostalgia. I, I get it. I, I'll, I'll cop to that. I own that. But... All of those real sets with like again that hand painted sunsets behind them or whatever and all the the real castles and everything and I just love it. It just feels so good watching this movie. It's not this gross slick CGI you know eye candy mess whatever things are today. I it, it's so restrained and it's so like gritty and earthy and whatever and I don't know. I I. I I can't say enough about it. Again, might be nostalgia. I can I can live with that. But yeah, that, that's the last thing I have for what makes this movie work. Uh, what do you got? Well, I think I mean, I, I think that's that's a good note. And I, I don't know if I have the same nostalgia for it as a general concept. But for this movie, it works really well. Again, going back to the being all in on the fairy tale vibes. I think it's it's impossible to imagine this movie without that kind of set piece, you know, and that kind yeah. of style. So I definitely agree with you there. Uh, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the romance at the center of the movie. You know, I totally buy their relationship. I totally buy that they're in love. Um, I think this is a movie that is, I don't know. I don't even know what this movie is. If the romance at the center doesn't stick, but it's not good. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, obviously we know as the audience that this masked man is Wesley the whole time because we're not fooled by a mask. But, you know, the reveal as he's rolling down the hill with the as you wish, you know, is 
is a beautiful little moment. And there's the line going back to like some of those serious lines of death cannot stop true law love. All it can do is delay it for a while. It's just like, take my heart, take my heart. You two. Yeah. I hope you guys, uh, absolutely. You know, I hope your marriage works out, but so, yeah, I, I just really buy into the romance of the film and that's pretty critical. So I well, and getting back there, to what but. we've, yeah, yeah, getting back to what we've pointed out a couple of times, like that is easy. That can easily go wrong, mm-hmm. right? If that chemistry isn't there, if if something about it felt off or felt un, un um, ungenuine or whatever, you, you would you wouldn't buy the central conceit of the story. You wouldn't be invested in it in the same way. Uh, so yeah, I, I I totally agree. I think that's a that's a critical, like you said, it's just very critical. Yeah, and the last thing I had was that. Uh, well, I won't say all the action sequences, but some of the action sequences age better than I thought they would, right? I think the fight I, bet- between Wesley and Matoya is actually, like, pretty fun little sparring. You know, they do... I think part of that is that it's a fencing kind of fight, so it's a lot more choreographed, uh-huh. and you don't have to get into physical acting, and when they get into physical fighting, this movie gets real fake real quick. Um but I, I really like that scene, and I love the, you seem a decent fellow, I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow, I hate to die. Another great witty line. The entire, I'm not left-handed, I'm not left-handed either, is just like, put that into every sword fighting movie ever, and you're going to get me. I'm going to be like, cool! Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, I don't know. A lot of the physical acting in this does not age well. But there were a couple of moments where I was like, oh, that actually is better than I remember it. Less cheesy looking, so... Just wanted huh. to shout that out. Well, uh, you said that was your last. What That's my last one, which I'm assuming is means we're moving into you thinking it doesn't work. <laughs> so, uh, what doesn't work in this movie? The first thing I wrote down was it probably fits the vibe, but I just gotta say the sword fight was way cooler in my memory. Oh. That's word for word what I wrote. That's word for word what I wrote. I wrote they kind of just vaguely swing swords at each other. So I will accept that. Like, this is where the nostalgia thing is a double-edged sword, right? Because yeah. in my memory, that was like, that fight was like the end of the Phantom Menace. You know what I mean? That, it was like, it was really intense. Yeah, and it was like all this all this cool swordplay, and it was just like really gripping. And, and you know, you can imagine little six-year-old John just huddled by the TV like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And so going back to that, I thought, okay, they're 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 kind of vaguely swinging the sword at each yeah. other. And, uh you know, so for me, that one, that one maybe didn't land. So I felt in the same way. Not to, yeah. No, no, no. I felt that way pretty strongly with, for example, the fight with the six fingered man. Um, I'm just yeah. like, I don't buy that any of this is like, happening. Actually, um, it's funny that one still is okay for me because the emotional stakes are so well, high. So like, I don't, is, I don't even notice the the swordplay. Yeah, to get to the nostalgia, just letting you down. Man, the fight with Andre the Giant is. Terrible. Yeah, that's the one. It's yeah, terrible. that's the other one I wrote down. Yeah, that the is, rocks are it's... so obviously paper mache, right? It's just like, jeez, <laughs> dude, this is bad. Well, and it's also so much shorter. It is. It's he so much like more him. boringly choreographed than I thought. It's like one minute, and he kind of just ducks out of the way once, and then jumps on his back. Yeah, it's all made up for by the line at the end. In the meantime, sleep well and dream of large women. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Away. And all those scenes great. have great lines, but yeah, no, the actual physical movement and ugh, it's just, it did not uh, capture the showdown with the giant that I remembered from my childhood. I agree. 
You know what, though? On the other credit we're due, on the other hand, the fight with the rodent was a little bit more harrowing than I yeah. remembered. Yeah, except um, for the rodent. So that's my that, next what didn't work is, and again, this might be intentional, <laughs> but the physical uh, effects of this movie look really fake. So, like, I already yeah. said the rocks are paper mache. That's obvious. The fire spouts and the fire swamp, you're like, okay. <laughs> Those look like you just yeah. turned on a gas canister. Um, but I also put down the rats. Like, the rats are terrifying to me, but when you actually get a good look at them, it's kind of like in Alien, where we talked about how when it's sure. just the robotic, it looks pretty scary. But when you see it move, you're like, oh, that's a fake, stupid rat robot, you know? Yeah. Um, so, anyways, that's probably more about the time. Some of it's probably intentional, but the physical effects well, and, don't always land. Well, and you're right that I kind of struggled with, like, how much is this actually a negative? Because you know this isn't this isn't Jurassic Park, right? This yeah. isn't a Spielberg movie Wait, trying to be like, <laughs> trying to be just like you know, my, blowing you away with visuals. That's clearly not. It, it knows that's not its strength. Um, and I, I also suspect they probably budgeted against that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I think I suspect they put more money into actors and into, uh, you know, I'm sure William Goldman got paid well and stuff like that. So. So I, I do think it's that wasn't the priority of the movie, and the movie knows that's not the priority. Uh, but you're right; there's a lot of stuff like that that you think, oh, okay, that you know. Um, the one I always remember is when it's actually a great scene, but when uh, Andre the Giant is in the uh, black cloak oh, yeah. and they're wheeling him towards <laughs> <Yes>. the thing, <laughs> and what what's so clear is that the cutaway shot from his close up on his face to the whole thing are just so different, yeah, and, and not even remotely like the same shot or the same scene um which makes sense they're not going to set andre the giant on fire but that's what i remember that even as a kid i was like that is obviously just two different shots that you're cutting together as though it's the same scene um my other doesn't work i I have two more what doesn't work uh obviously i don't have that many actually why don't you go mike (laughs) just because Um, i'm suddenly self-conscious about about talking too much you've done this to me you're the worst As you should okay, be. Okay, cool, um, cool. Love Again, this. this is intentional, so maybe it's not that it doesn't work, but I always forget just how annoying Vizzini is. Like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. That voice, man, too. <laughs> yeah. the, the high pitch. Because he becomes, and, and you know what most of us know him from? I don't know if you realize this, because I, I mentioned um, my dinner with Andre, but he's also Rex from Toy Story. Yep. And you can he tell. fits that character really well. Again, that character's kind of annoying. He fits this character really well. This character is kind of annoying. So, yeah, that's a real thing. The bit wore off more quickly than when I was a kid. I'll just leave it at that. Oh, uh, I guess it's me. Um, so, I'm honestly, I'm I'm not really qualified to talk about this, and you're not either. Um, Buttercup doesn't do a lot in this movie. Yeah. Doesn't strike me as a beacon of feminism. Nope. That's all I wrote. Yep. I'm not an expert. I, I, I just, so I don't necessarily know how much you want to go into it. I'm willing to talk about it. I just... Well, don't feel qualified to it just yeah. feels like okay this character well and, and actually i do want to elaborate a little bit because she's also incredibly stupid in the movie i just gotta say yeah i just gotta get that get that out there that like she can't she more than once trusts humperdinck when it's obvious that he's the most evil person she's ever met and it's like oh you'll send out these ships for wesley and he's like yeah i'll do it and you're like wow that was never going to happen. And she's like, hey, uh, you won't kill Wesley and I'll come back and marry you and stuff. And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. And, she, and you're like, wow, 
that's not going to happen. You know, and, and that just keeps going. Every time that happens, I just think, uh, maybe not the best female character ever written. I'm no, just, just and that gets into there. like yeah. how much of this is the trope and how much of it, you know, is the yeah. 80s and how point. much of it is actually intentional and how much of it is just a reflection of, quite frankly, an era of movie making that did not have a yeah. ton of. Well, 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 and also like a, a fairy tale story where that was not a strong character. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, I think yeah. I think, you know, when you talk about the modern conversations of, you know, the pixie dream girl and not that that's what this is, but the fact that she doesn't really have her own motivations other than the guy and his whole life is about finding her like there is there is critique there. There is valid critique there um, of that as a character. I don't know how much I want to get into it just because of all we've already said which is that it's it's grounded in the very tropes and genre that basically held those things up as a cornerstone of the damsel in distress right so uh, it's not great but i don't really know what to say about it other than that i guess where i'd I'd stop but so yeah it's a problem but i don't know what to do with it well and and it's also worth noting that like it's not like the solution is not, you know, there isn't a solution. This is just, this document, it exists. We're not going to change it, but it's not like the solution would be like Buttercup picks up a fight or picks up a sword and starts fighting. You know, no, I always feel yeah. the need to say that because I, I think sometimes stupid corporations think that's the solution is like, yeah. Oh, we need all our, which actually isn't a conversation of itself. Like women characters aren't made more strong by making them, more masculine yeah right? and that's and not the answer and, and that's not, the problem with the character is not that she's not masculine it's and it's not a things. it's also not a fem, a feminist revolution to have all the marvel female characters stand in a poster that you're like, going to turn around and sell right <laughs> um i mean that's like the the perfect example i don't know what you're, you're talking about that solved that solved uh that solved uh sexism mike yeah I, absolutely I did you not Dis- get the memo disney yeah. did it <laughs> we did it it's amazing <laughs> So well, yeah, yeah it's, no, it's, I, I agree with you. I yeah. guess that's all I'm trying to say. I don't, I don't really have a solution to this problem. I don't want a, this movie to be longer. That's the other part of it. Like, I don't need the Butterclub subplot, right? I don't know how you yeah, build that into the film. But the character is still not a strong female character. So, yeah. um, if yeah. any of the female listeners want to give us some advice on how to fix Princess Bride, I am down because I'm at a loss. But I yeah, think that's. I not. agree. I agree. Um, but this is my last one. I'll just go ahead if that's okay. It's a small one because I'm not very committed to it, but I'm, I'm not so sure about Humperdinck, the character. Yeah. Or yeah. excuse me, the actor. Maybe nope. both. I don't know. Um, it's He's not bad, but he's, I would say of the cast, he's clearly the weakest, right? Yes. Like he's, he's the guy I don't really think about. He's evil, but not in a fun way. And I think that's the biggest, that's the most damning thing I could say is that he's like really kind of over the top evil and for essentially the whole movie is not it's not very fun you're just kind of like oh, okay this guy exists and i don't like him cool um the most fun he is is in the scene where he's threatening wesley and wesley's lined out and does his whole like i'll cut you down until yeah. it's just your ears what a whatever. great scene um and even then that's landing because of wesley more so than him yeah. right like he he's kind of just there um so yeah, Ooh, yeah. i don't know not, i had not, him not down. the biggest point I had him down too. you know, he's obviously meant to play like the blustering coward with power who doesn't actually, he's not actually, you know, strong or brave or all these other things that Wesley is. Don't know how interesting that is as a character. I understand the trope. 
I couldn't help but imagine the king from Shrek in this role, like doing the villain that way, sure. where he is a bit yeah. more arrogant yeah. and blustering and obnoxious. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that would work, but it's more entertaining in my mind. So he's kind of just white bread in this movie. He's kind of bland, tasteless, not super entertaining, like you said. So I, I, I have a uh, I have a, a recast for this part that I think I, I think he'd be on board with. I think what? they get Alan Rickman in here. Oh, look at that. Right, right. What this about is, Al Pacino? Like... Hey. Al, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Hey. Alan Rickman was a real suggestion. <laughs> don't get in here with that. I'm not hearing it. This is Alan Rickman either right before or right after Die Hard. A few years later, he's also the best part in um, in uh, the Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie. Yep. Uh, yeah. I think he would have, he would have killed this. He yeah. would have been... He would have taken that part and made it arguably the best part of the movie. I'm sad that that didn't happen. In hindsight, too. if they had landed that, I, I don't think they were trying to. I'm just guessing. But, man, that would have been so much fun. There is a uh, there is an interesting conversation about the character needs to at least come across as trying to portray himself as good. And does can Alan Rickman do that? I don't know. Like I'm always a little <laughs> skeptical of any heroism I would see from an Alan Rickman character. I'm like, but you're really evil, right? Um, but see, I guess that's what I'm saying is that I never, you, I never, yeah, you for never a buy second it. thought Fair. the character was good. So yeah. I'm like, well, maybe they should just lean into that. And sure, just, you know, I'm with you. So I'm with you. I got two more. Uh, if you're if you're done, I was gonna say that's it for me. Yeah, you can go ahead. One of these is a joke, and one of them's not. I'm gonna start with the one that's not. So. This came up with Blade Runner, but Wesley threatening to slap Buttercup and honestly, like a number of times, I feel like there are like women almost being slapped. The 80s just had a really weird obsession with that sort of thing. And this isn't the only movie that does that where it's unnecessary, right? It's just like out of nowhere. Someone's just like, I'm going to slap this woman talking back to me. Um I just I just don't know why that sort of stuff is even in this movie, especially from Wesley. It feels really out of character. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's very out of character for Wesley. And I, even as a kid, I always thought that was jarring. I kind of, I, I guess I always took it for granted, like a, a headcanon sort of way that like there was literally no way he ever was going to do that. But he was trying to get out of her the answer about, because he, he's, the, the whole reason he does this whole, like, I'm not Wesley thing at the beginning of meeting her is because he's trying to decide if she's actually abandoned him for yeah. the king, right? Yeah. And that's why he kind of interrogates her about that, or the prince, I should say. But I mean, that that that's not a, it's not good, right? That's like, a good that's reason just, to physically that, assault the, a woman, yeah. Yeah, or to threaten to, yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so yeah, that's the most, yeah, that's the best I could do to make it consistent with the character, but it's not, it's not good. And it doesn't even really work that well, so yeah, yeah. it's weird. It's out of place. Yeah, and the last one I had is is just kind of like a visceral reaction. This is more of a joke, but kind of not really, which is like the okay boomerness of this whole movie revolving around like anti-video game sentiment. Like the movie <laughs> takes place because kids stay in their rooms and play video games and don't care about their grandparents anymore. And there's just like a part of me that relates to that because like I didn't really always want to hang out with my grandparents. But I'm also just like this. Uh, okay, boomer, you know? Okay. So that's all Do I got. Do you know why... <laughs> Do you know why I never, ever thought that? Is because this movie, along with uh, another movie, which 
I was thinking I would like us to do maybe one day um, trade like obscure childhood films. So like sure. you have to watch one that that I loved, but you've never seen. And I have to watch one. Yeah, and you'd have you to love, watch. I've never seen Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that's your that's your <laughs> obscure childhood film. Uh, mine. The reason I thought that is because I rewatched a movie called The Page Master, which is probably not oh, an I've amazing movie, but okay. I oh, loved that movie as a yeah. kid. That was yeah. like one of my absolute favorite movies, and. I think that movie and this movie to a bookish kid were like, books are amazing. So yeah. I never, ever, ever got that impression. I was just like, yeah, books yeah. are great. I'm going to I'm gonna express that by watching a movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So I, I get where you're coming from. But I it's was just like, ah, It's mostly like a joke, but also kind of not. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, on that note, uh, do you want to move to Stray Thoughts? Let's do it. So Mike and I have each prepared a selection of stray thoughts. We're just going to trade back and forth and blow through these. I have more for this movie than almost any movie we've done. Really? So, okay. Yeah, I got I got just a lot. Even though I just noticed a lot of them are quotes that we've already read. So maybe this might get a lot shorter. This well, might get a lot go, shorter. That's okay. Let me go first because mine's related to my last comment. Okay, go ahead. So my grandparents never came over while I was sick and just read me fairy tale books. And you know what? That doesn't really upset me. Yeah. I'm upset about that too. I always lived in a different cities than my grandparents. No, no, no. So it was never it an option. It doesn't upset me. I want to make sure you heard oh. me right. It doesn't Wait. upset me. <laughs> what the hell? Do you just not, not like what? just not something I long for? What are you talking about? <laughs> I was I would have loved to do that. I was that looked like amazing. He's basically an audio it's an it's an in-person audiobook. What are you talking about? Yeah, you I wouldn't don't need have wanted that. that. Oh my god. I didn't know Mike hated love and warmth and kindness and familial don't forget old people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm shook. I'm mad. I'm, I don't even know how to keep going. Um, I guess I'm just gonna go. I just, I, I just firmly disagree. I, I also did not have that experience. I would have loved that experience. So you, you just don't love you. You just don't have good relationships with your grandparents or something. They're just well, they're dead. So that's probably true. <sighs> okay. <laughs> The most uh, my first I've one. Ever seen you. <laughs> my first one. What exactly was the formal relationship of Buttercup and Wesley at the beginning of the Dude, movie? Dude, okay. And, because, yes. And I've had, since I was a kid, I've not understood because, first of all, they're the only two people you see, right, on this yeah. whole farm. You, you don't yes. see her parents. You don't see his, like, sister or something. You see no one. And she's just kind of ordering him around. What's going on? Who is she? Does she own this? Is she the, like, and he's her only employee? That's what it seems like, and it doesn't make any sense. And I just don't get it. Do you have yeah. any insight, or are you just equally confused? No, so I don't have insight, but I so I also don't understand. And I also came at it from a post-Me Too power dynamics conversation. Like, let's yeah. talk about the problems of, like, a woman falling in love with her male slave who only says, as you wish. Because there's a pretty clear power dynamic at play here that I think is a real issue, right? Like, she calls him <laughs> farm boy and orders him to do things, and he's like, as you wish, oh my gosh, I love you. I don't know. Is it, I mean, come on. In this modern yeah, world, no, I'm, I'm, if this is the CEO of Microsoft and his assistant, or like, are you cool with that? <laughs> like, Yeah, no, I... Yeah, it's it's weird, and it's and even as a kid... And he, they have to do that, and they just have to get through it, and it fits the fairy tale vibe, but... Yeah, no, I don't... 
I don't get it. I don't get it from so many different levels. Um, Which is, and it is, yeah. should be, it should be thrown out there that there is something really neat about how that hit. Wesley's character would usually be the female in this story, right? When you think of uh, Sleeping Beauty or whatever, any number of these characters where the female is like the downtrodden peasant who gets noticed by a prince and happily ever after, right? So there is something neat there, but still. Power dynamics are important to talk about in romantic relationships in a workplace. That's all I have to say. Yeah. No, you're you're right. It's an interesting reading of the beginning of the movie as a workplace. I mean, I, I guess it is. Well, I mean, okay, so now you're getting into, like, now you're casting me as, like, a conservative Republican who wants to, like, rename slavery <laughs> as, like, workplace ethics. And, okay, I listen. Just, I wasn't going to say it. I was listen. thinking it. <laughs> Critical race theory. <laughs> can we move on i'm really i'm really in a hole i'm just i'm just like you stew it i i just i'm just enjoying this I, I i'm just happy that we finally outed you as a political conservative we've always known it it's always been a ten- frankly it's always been attention in this podcast um i see that, i don't you know, understand the problem with buttercup doing this she seemed to have treated him right Okay. He seemed happy. No, 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 I, no, I don't feel good. I'm moving on. Yeah, because it's not um, comfortable. <laughs> this okay. movie is jacked. Uh, so so let's talk about Humperdinck's plan just a little bit. Um, let's actually start here, though. It doesn't make political sense for a prince to marry a commoner in any context. No. Like that's a waste of an incredibly valuable political tool that you use yes. to create an alliance or your connection with another dynasty. And that's stupid. But his plan is to pick this woman that I guess is really beloved for actually kind of murky reasons, but whatever. And then that she gets killed and he blames it on Gilder and he wants them to go to war with Gilder, but he also hired Vizzini to kill her. It's revealed. So why did he rescue her from Fazzini? Why did he chase her that much? Why did there's so many things that I just can't put together? And also, there's got to be an easier way to get a war started. I I, I feel like I don't know. I, I I don't know. There's and also why does he want a war? His his particular Florin, I think uh, that particular country doesn't seem like they're really in a war state. Um, <laughs> or would be good for that. They certainly can't defend the castle very well. Let me tell you that. They they can't defend the castle from one Andre the Giant with a, a, you know with a robe that catches on fire. So like that's a bad sign. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have further thoughts. I just I I have questions. Questions without answers. Yep. Yeah. My next point was I wish there was more intel on this war that Vizzini is trying to start. I actually thought it could have been like a Game of Thrones style political intrigue movie, maybe. You know, we could maybe. have some yeah, betrayals, yeah, some some maps, some dragons, uh, a bad ending. But instead, it's just very confusing. I don't understand his goals. I Again, they're trying to cast him as this character that puts on a show of being good. So I think that's the whole chase element of it, where it's like, look how much your king is trying to find your beloved princess. Um, it yeah. doesn't come off that way. It just seems like a bad plan. So... And then he's just going to strangle her on the wedding night. So there's like, yeah, like he just apparently is like, oh, I actually didn't need to do any of that. I'm just going to murder her. And apparently the peasants will be cool with that. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I got nothing. Yeah. That's a, you have summed up my my <laughs> end point as well. Of just like okay, that okay, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't yeah, necessarily and, make sense. And the icing on the cake. My next point, I'll just throw it out there. Humperdink is a yeah. dumb name. So, <laughs> but it's supposed go. to be. I think it's supposed well, yeah. to be stupid. But I, we're just. But it's, we're crapping on the guys. <laughs> just figured I'd take a low blow. <laughs> Uh, you know what? Let's just keep on the Humperdinck train for a section for for a for a minute here. So Humperdinck and Count Ruben are just psychopaths, right? Yeah. Like, and and not even in a not in like a fun cutesy way, they are psychopaths. I kind of forgot, like the whole the whole cave of what do they call it despair. pit of despair, the whole pit of despair. Yeah. Uh, you know what? A little dark for a kids movie, and yeah. in a way that I'm not sure if I picked up on as a kid. That I'm yeah. like, oh, they regularly torture people, and he's super stoked to murder this beautiful woman who's marrying, who he's forcing to marry him. And yeah, this is bad. This is like, uh, uh, what's the guy from from American Psycho, Bates? Yes. Uh, yeah. This this yeah. is this is that Norman level Bates of stuff. yeah. Yeah, Norman Bates is Psycho. American Psycho, well, whatever you know, it, it it's it's psychopathic. It's genuinely more disturbing than I think I remembered. Uh, so, good times. Follow up question: um, You you said he's not one of the cutesy psychopaths. So, what is an example of a cutesy <laughs> psychopath? Just curious. I mean, I mean that in in kids movies and stuff, you'll have characters who you'll like realize later. Well, that was kind of dark, but in the context of the movie, you were like. Oh, this is all silly or whatever. Uh, try to find a good example. Syndrome in um, The Incredibles. Sure. Is a cutesy psychopath. Because it's only after the movie. I, I don't think within the movie I, I really registered like, oh, this is horrifying. This this is like. Yeah. Yeah. This is a horrifying character. Uh, so, yeah. But I'm saying within this movie, watching it, I'm like, oh, ah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, man. I just wasn't sure if yeah. you were referencing like Kevin Spacey in Seven or Kevin Spacey in Real yeah, Life, just, or just very something cute. like that. Just, just yeah, yeah, very, very sweet, sweet stuff. Yeah. Just so charming. Very cute. Cute was the word I was thinking of. I was doing. I was thinking of Buffalo Bill. I was <laughs> Ted like, yeah, Bundy, cutesy uh, psychopath. <laughs> cutesy psychopath. Uh, what do you got? Um, <laughs> when they're climbing the rope up the cliffs of insanity, you know. <laughs> first one of them is like he's climbing the rope inconceivable and you're kind of like why it's a rope like it's just not that surprising and then later yeah. like montoya is like he looks down he's like he's climbing he's gaining on us and it's like why is any of this surprising you guys are like three people going up the rope on the back of a giant and they're just like stunned that this well, guy can climb a rope well, i don't know i just thought that was interesting Vizzini says at the beginning, like only only Fe only Fezzik can climb up this way. He'll have to sail around for hours looking for a port. And yeah, even as a kid, I'm like, why can't can, can he not climb a rope? Like, yeah, that, I just I just don't get like, the confusion. It seems like a pretty like simple can, concept. Yeah, I, I just feel like people can climb ropes. I just don't think that's <laughs> exactly. Like I did it in gym class. I remember doing it. Yeah, I, I didn't like it. It's a long rope, but I don't know. He seems in good shape. Yeah, it's weird. Um. Peter Falk sadly departed. Oh. I'm not sure why no one paid him to record like every audiobook ever. Oh, that's a good. I would have was unlike Mike. I actually really wanted the experience of 
an elderly, affectionate person reading a story to me. And I would have loved um, Peter Fox voice in, in for all of my podcasts or, or excuse me, all of my audiobooks. So is this like a I'm childhood wound, John? Like I don't think so. You just I mean, didn't get read to enough. Like I don't understand what's maybe happening. Maybe I didn't. But that would be that would be ironic because as early as I could, I stopped having people read to me. I was very excited when I could read on oh, my wow. own. So, so maybe I sort of did it to myself. I don't know. Yeah. Self inflicted yeah, wound. Yeah, interesting depths we're reaching here. I don't love it. I don't okay. love it. Uh, I got a two-part mask-related point. Uh, okay. One, oh, be- yeah. No, I, I have this, but keep going. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the first one is be careful people in masks cannot be trusted, which I thought was pretty prescient. You know, got some watching yeah, great. sentiments great like that. And then uh, I wear the mask because they're terribly comfortable, and I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. Yep. Uh, Jesus Christ did not yeah, need that. No, it's today. great. Right there in my notes, you took the next one, took – Took the words out of my mouth. I just wrote actual quote. They're just terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. I'm like, wow, thanks. COVID did a lot to us. Any movie that talks about masks now, we're all <laughs> we're all getting like PTSD about it. It's great. Um, I wish more things in real life were named stuff like the Cliffs of Insanity, the Fire Swamp, uh, you know, eel infested waters. I don't know. I just feel like was he called the shrieking eels are the name of the things yeah. i just like names like that i just feel like science is science and geography are more boring than that that makes me yeah sad. also imperialism because i actually feel like a lot of native names for things are really cool like that but you know yeah yeah white people um uh. yep so when wesley is revived from the machine that sucks uh-huh. years off of his life does that restore oh, yeah. his lost years or is he gonna die like any day now so i also assumed that um count ruben was wrong and that the machine doesn't suck gears out of you it just hurts you a lot uh so i so i guess i just assumed that he was wrong i don't know why i formed this assumption maybe feels I like just a coping mechanism to, dude <laughs> yeah i was gonna say maybe i just really wanted to hold on to like oh everyone's gonna be fine there's no problems but I don't know. Somehow in my head that made sense. I was like, oh, well, you know, it's he's just wrong and it doesn't do that. I think I like the idea, too, that he was just stupid. Is he? <laughs> he was. Is he like 80 yeah. now? <laughs> <laughs> is he? Yeah, that would have been another direction to go is that they just made him like 50 years older all of a sudden. <laughs> you still love me. <laughs> True love crosses all bounds, Mike. Um Something in Inigo's story about his father doesn't add up. And this is another <laughs> one that I've that I've had since I was a kid that I've never quite because so he he's like, okay, so there's this sword. My d- father made amazing swords. And yeah. Wesley grabs and's like, I've never met his equal. And he's like, the six he made it for the six-figure man, okay? So just here's the plot. He made it for the six-figure man. Six-figure man came to get it, refused to pay the full price for it. His father said, Well, I'm not gonna give it to you then. So the six-finger man stabbed him through the heart, he says. And then Anigo tries to fight him, and he gives him the two cuts. Okay? Great. How does Anigo end up with the sword at the end of that? Yeah. Because you would think if you were the six-finger man, and the whole dispute was that he made you the sword and you don't want to pay for it, after you stabbed him, would you not take the sword? Was that not the whole purpose of why you stabbed him and didn't want to pay full price and everything? Like, how does the sword end up with Anigo? I don't so, get it. if we're dabbling in conjecture that's not supported by anything the movie actually says, um, you know, part of me could see him being evil enough to, like, 
as like a way of showing how deeply he do- he killed his father for no reason. Oh, just sure. For, like, the yeah, of it. It's like he gives that's how this, petty he, it is. That yeah, yeah. Keep the stupid sword. I just killed yeah. him for sport. Yeah, eh, fair yeah. enough. I can accept that. Again, the movie doesn't say any of this stuff. <laughs> kind of like doesn't say that the machine it doesn't actually work. So we're just yep. trying to cope with plot holes, probably. <laughs> no, I, I I buy that. I buy that. Uh, what do you got? Um, I love the entire roast of Wesley on Humpertink when he gets out of the bed. It is absolutely glorious. It's like vindication <laughs> in the most epic way. Very much yeah. so in line with the uh, Mintia or, you know, my, you killed my father prepared to die. That entire scene is also like the most gratifying thing. But from yeah. the Wesley kind of roast battle, the you warthog faced baboon might be the greatest insult I've ever heard in my life. I don't know why. Yeah. It's just really funny. It's incredible. It's beautiful. Um, how come when Wesley hands Vassini the IOK powder and he says, inhale this, but do not touch. And Vassini just inhales it. Yeah. That yeah, seems like a bad too. idea. And, and, Actually, there's a fan theory that he did not poison the 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 wine at all, but iocane powder is deadly if inhaled. Have you ever heard that? No, but that'd be that's pretty funny. That's kind of funny, right? And then yeah. like just sort of lied about the whole like oh I built up immunity. It's like nah, I just killed him when he inhaled it for some dumb reason. <laughs> is Wesley uh, a monster? What's up? Is Wesley a monster? Is he a sociopath? He's a he's literally a pirate who admits to having killed people. So I yeah, mean, okay. Yeah. So he's also a psychopath. Yeah. This is a movie of psychopaths. Got it. Yep. Yep. We so, we did it. So I hate the fire swamp. Um, it's literally the embodiment of everything I hate and am, I'm afraid of in this world. Like, sure. As a kid, quicksand was literally the scariest concept in the world. Did you have a phase like that as a kid? Uh, yeah, well, and, and John Mulaney has a great bit about this where he, he says, as a kid, I really thought quicksand was going to be a bigger deal. Yeah, exactly. Life. And it's it's movies like this. You're like, oh, my God, I need to be worried about that. And it, I've, in my entire life, I've never seen that. But no, it's terrifying. It's freaky. I'm with you. Yeah. And then there's also I also hate rats. That's the other part of it. And like to have this many massive rats, it's uh it's it's just not my favorite thing. That's all I have to say. Well, and actually, I, I do have a, a my next one leads off of that because I I just find Wesley's brand of optimism in the fire swamp I just consider kind of iconic, and honestly, a little bit of a uh, what would the word be? A little bit of an aspiration because I just like the idea of being in such a horrible situation and just saying, uh, well, like there's a couple lines. It's not that bad. And she looks at him and he says, I wouldn't want to build a summer home here, but the trees are actually quite lovely. Yeah. Uh, I like when they're walking in and she says, we'll never survive. And he says, nonsense. You only say that because no one ever has. Yes. Um, and then my favorite, my other favorite quick cut, going back to the rodents thing, when he's already seen them, so he knows this is a problem. And she says, but what about the RUSs? And he just deadpans, rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. And then he gets slammed with one. I just yeah, that yeah, like I said yeah. that particular brand of optimism I just find that that's a goal you know I I want to be able yeah. to do that hashtag goals hashtag goals oh yeah I have like a bad day at work and I'm like it's over I'm done <laughs> this guy's throwing out little snide comments about 
being mauled by giant rats. I mean, come on. About being kind of in hell. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's your turn. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah. Sorry, that one was a lead off of mine, but I can go ahead. I have no, two go. more, actually. So, uh, so Mike, you've performed a few weddings. Um, yeah. My dad's a pastor, and he's also performed weddings. How? What I was going to ask is, are you at the point of your career yet where you're sick of the mowage gag? Because I, my dad's really nice, so I don't know if he would ever say he's sick of it, but I know that every single wedding he's ever done, and I'm going to guess every wedding ever done in the last 20 years, someone at some point is going to make that joke. And they're not even going to make a joke. They're just going to say like, hey, Mike, Mike. Mowage. Yeah. Mowage sure. is what are you are you still okay with it? Are you still on board? Or are you at the point where you're like, no, I don't you you don't need to make that joke. I I yeah, I know. Haha, ha, it's a marriage thing. Okay, it's a wedding thing. Cool. Are you still there? You know, I'm actually trying to think of a time if anyone's ever done it. Wow. But, really? I, I refuse to believe that. But to answer your question, having not having not been able to remember a time. Zero is enough. So yes, I'm over it. Like, the first time someone does that to me is one too many times. We have a lot of friends who listen to this. Uh, if you are at a wedding with Mike <laughs> oh, in the future, crap. please do not hesitate to break out the mowage thing. I'm sure you <sighs> really appreciate it. <laughs> Look at what you've done. Look at all this power I have. This is great. So I got one. Uh, what is? <laughs> I can't. I honestly can't decide my answer to this question. Uh, what is the more effective torture method, the machine, or Mads Mickelson hitting James Bond in the nuts with a ball of rope in Casino Royale? <laughs> um, did I you think say I'm what's more afraid of the rope. Method? Oh, I am. The, the rope is a little more visceral, um, but if we assume that because it's a fantasy story if we assume that he really did scream that loud the second time they turned on the machine then i'm gonna go ahead and say that one's worse because they hear that from miles away it seems sure. seems like uh and if you got me to a state where i was screaming that loud i'm gonna assume that would be pretty bad but again, again just a guess here wesley would scream that loud about the eighth time he got smacked in the nuts with a ball of rope it's you know i i don't I don't. I I don't I don't have a. I don't know. <laughs> you bested me. I'm speechless. I don't. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm just gonna move on. This is my last one. Um, this is actually a story. I don't know if you've heard the story before, but basically, uh, the set. It sounds like the set was a lot of fun on this movie. Carrie Elwes, we were talking about earlier, actually wrote a book about making the film called As You Wish. Hmm. Um, the last couple years. I heard it was pretty good. I haven't read it, but kind of a memoir about this movie. Uh, during the press tour, though, he told this story. He said, I can't remember a day without laughter. Rob Reiner was kind of the father of the group. He hosted dinners for the cast and he encouraged game nights and other hangouts. Again, all of that's awesome. Um, but Carriola says, one of the ways I knew the group was going to jail was on the first day. Andre the Giant, who played Fezzik, let out a 16-second fart and brought production to a standstill. Uh, Elwes said with a laugh it could be heard three counties away nobody said anything except Rob 
who asked Rob Reiner, the director, who asked, are you okay, Andre? And Andre replied, I am now, boss. <laughs> I just love that story. That's just one of my favorite movie-making stories. And if you think how long 16 seconds is. No, I can't. I can't even imagine. It's insane. Yeah, it's just, and, and if it was a normal person, I would say they were exaggerating. But you think about Andre the Giant, you're like, that could have been true. Yeah, that might, maybe. It might, that, that was probably pretty close. Uh, I just love, are you okay, Andre? I am now, boss. What a guy. <laughs> I can imagine him saying it, too. Yeah, the voice. Yep. Nailed it. <laughs> we're, that's awesome. We're good. That's great. We need to get that out. <laughs> uh, that's it for me. What do you got? I'm done. Oh, you're done. We've yeah. never done that before. We've never landed on the same. Well, I'm proud of how, us. How, how, oh, I'm amazed. Well, uh, Cole, if you guys want to stick around right after the break, we're going to hit some essays Mike and I have each prepared. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Like we said earlier in the second part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared an essay kind of diving deep into one part of the story or one part of the movie or just tangenting off it, to be honest. Uh, and we're going to just kind of read those and then see what discussion it, it creates. So, uh, Mike, I think I'm going first this week. OK, great. Well, here we go. So if I put together a list of exactly what the world does not need right now, a gritty reboot of The Princess Bride would feature pretty highly. There's something genuinely valuable about a story that's unapologetically, well, a fairy tale, an optimistic, bright, happily ever after perspective of the world. But having said that, there is one journey in The Princess Bride that I find incredibly intriguing. Certainly it's the journey that's stuck with me the most that I think about far more often than for example, the story of Buttercup and Wesley. I suspect that this part of the movie also resonates with a lot of other people, because if you mention The Princess Bride, it's almost always the first quote out of people's mouths. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. First of all, what a badass line. And honestly, what a badass character. When I think of revenge movies, Kill Bill is all, almost always my go-to. But given how early I saw this, I'm pretty sure it's my first real exposure to this kind of story. When we meet Anigo, he is 20 years into a journey seeking vengeance. And that need for revenge has consumed his entire life. His only diversions from that path have been for what would explicitly be able to help him, training on the sword or even paying the bills, all in the name of his ultimate quest. But if I'm honest, as much as I love Anigo Montoya, I do think he represents the least realistic part of the whole movie. Not in the sense that giant eels and miracle workers are quote-unquote unrealistic, but in the sense that the characters and their characterization can be. Anigo's journey is arguably the most painful of any of the main characters. Buttercup and Wesley are driven forward by their undying hope in each other, Fezzik is sort of happy-go-lucky and seems mostly driven by his love for his friends. But Anigo is driven forward by anger, by hatred, by sorrow. It might sound like I'm reading a lot into the character. On the one hand, that's kind of what we do on this show. But on the other hand, I have a couple quotes that Anigo says in this movie. That is the sound of ultimate suffering, 
My heart made that sound when the six-fingered man killed my father. Father, I have failed you for 20 years. Now our misery can end. And this last quote I actually got from the script, and I'm going to read the script direction, direction that comes at the beginning before the line. Anigo is possessed by demons now. Don't bother me with trifles. After 20 years at last, my father's soul will be at peace. Anigo's constant refrain is of his need for peace, for rest, for an end to misery. But it's more than that. He doesn't say he seeks peace for himself, but for his father. He doesn't exult at the end of my misery, but at the end of our misery. And there was this interesting moment on my last rewatch when it occurred to me, just who is Inigo seeking vengeance for? For the death of his father or for the pain that was inflicted upon him? So as a quick aside, I used to be a very casual fan of Magic the Gathering, a collectible card game with a fantasy setting where you fight other players with creatures and spells. One of my favorite things in the game are what's called flavor texts. Basically, there are these little stories or phrases or quotes on the cards that are designed to flesh out the game's fictional setting. And there's this one card called Ranker that has this incredible flavor text. The card itself is very powerful. It's actually a spell that makes a creature much more powerful. And if that creature gets killed, rather than exit the play of the game, Ranker gets kind of recycled back into the hand. It's a cool mechanic, and the flavor text of it captures the nature of the card and from the first time I'd ever heard it, it also gave me serious pause. The text is this. Hatred outlives the hateful. It's such a simple little quote, but the words, I think, are really, really insightful. And to be honest, it's been coming to my mind a lot lately because I've been trying to come to terms with some of the ways that I deal or fail to deal with my own anger. It's not that I'm a particularly angry person, I think, but I have slowly started to realize that when I do feel anger of any kind, I have developed an unhealthy habit of pushing it to the side. Rather than processing it, rather than considering or even acting on it, I seem to have this assumption that I can control strong emotions by ignoring them. If I don't let myself feel anger, it has no power over me, right? Emotions are this complicated part of the human experience. And like so many things in our lives, we often believe that we exercise greater control over them than we actually do. In my case, I delude myself into thinking that I can ignore strong emotions and they will leave me be. Some people may believe that they can indulge every emotion and remain in charge, or even that they can limit the impact of some emotions and expand the impact of others. And while self-control is an important part of learning to live in relationship with others, my mind drifts back to that sentence, hatred outlives the hateful. To put a particular spin on it, our emotions may have a greater impact on the world than our conscious actions. Anigo, like so many other revenge plot protagonists, is driven forward by a deep wounding, an increasingly obsessive desire to right a wrong, to enact suffering upon someone who caused him great suffering. But where Princess Bride, and to be fair, countless revenge stories, maybe loses the plot a little, is in the few critical moments after revenge has been taken. In this movie, a fairy tale, Anigo smiles to himself. 
for just a moment. And then he runs away. A few minutes later, he muses to Wesley that he's unsure what to do next in his life. And it seems that his prior obsession has left him completely. He appears calm. He appears content, even. And I wonder to myself if that would really happen that way. Because to return to a question from earlier, Anigo has, for 20 years, borne a sorrow, born a hatred that emanated from his own grief and that emanated on behalf of the injustice done to his father. He's taken all of this emotional weight from people who aren't even alive and sought to harness it and to use it as a power. Is it not kind of crazy to think that he never let those emotions start to control him? I suspect that in Inigo's position, I would not be able to move on so quickly. I suspect that Anigo, standing over the ruined corpse of Count Rugen, would soon find that his hatred had not left him after all, that the misery and burden he took upon himself would not disappear in one small act, but live on like a fever. The challenge of spirituality, I think, is to find the middle road between indulging and denying these strong emotions, these sensations which unchecked can consume and outlive us. Interestingly, that path is familiar to anyone who has sought to reconcile with other people because it starts with understanding. In the same way that resolution with others starts with a mutual understanding, resolution of our internal tension must start with an understanding of yourself, of where these strong emotions come from. And I think that is such a more difficult but more valuable journey to take. And despite the fun of movies like Princess Bride and Kill Bill, if I ever come to a place where I'm faced with this all-consuming anger, I hope that's the path that I would be able to take as well. Ooh, John. So a pretty light one this week. Yeah. You know, it was a fun movie. So I just figured, you know, let's take it easy. Let's not let's not make this too, you know, too intense or anything. Let's like keep that. it light. I like that let's about keep you, it light. John. I've always said it. I like that about you. Mostly I am really glad that I was able to work in the flavor text to, to a magic Gathering <laughs> card. Can you acknowledge though that line? is so absurdly good and again it's cool because it also connects to the the mechanic of the card but you know if i had a question for you or anything i guess as broad as it is i would almost start with do you have any response to that because the first time i heard that hatred outlives the hateful i couldn't get out of my head i think i thought about that for like a week because it's just so encapsulates the the strange the, the way again that these emotions and cycles of violence all these things take control of us, live mm-hmm. beyond us, exercise greater influence upon the world than we do in our conscious actions. So I guess, I don't know, do you have any, any reaction to that specifically would be my, my first question. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it best, which is just the cyclical nature of these things, right? Um, there's a great, you know, there's a great delusion that, uh, which we've talked about, I think, before, but that I think is really important to spirituality which is to recognize that you can't that in fighting evil with its own own tools you can't win right you just become 
the evil you're fighting against. And, you know, I think a great metaphor I always, I always go back to is the idea of the axe like chopping wood and the delusion that we mm. can engage in hatefulness, but you can replace that with violence or anything else that has broken our world that we can engage in that without in some way losing ourselves or losing our humanity or becoming something different is the axe chopping wood. It's believing that the axe isn't becoming more dull with each swing, right? That it isn't becoming Mm, less of the tool that it was designed to be. It loses something. Even if what we see is the wood being physically destroyed, there is still chop by chop, something lost in the sharpness of the axe, the doling of the axe. Right. And that's kind of where, so there's a personal cost that I come to there, which is it's insane to think that we can, that we don't lose a bit of our humanity by engaging in the inhuman, right? There's a cost. But then, yeah, there's the cyclical nature of it, which is it's also insane to think that with everything we know about what, you know, our children observe from watching us, from the ripple effect of our actions in a culture, right? That engaging in such heightened behaviors or heightened emotions, feeding those things would not carry on beyond ourselves would not be absorbed somewhere and then perpetuated right um yeah it's a cycle that never ends it's of course it's something that overflows and eventually saturates those around us or or at worst becomes an actual ingrained narrative in a culture that this is good right Mm. so yeah i mean that's my immediate reaction that's where i kind of went that personal cost and that overflowing nature of it of course it does of course it does yes well, and, and it's yeah, obviously I'm I'm I agree, and and you know it's something I didn't really get a chance to work into the essay, but that's what's so fascinating to me about also that he's taken on his father's pain as his own. Yeah, because his father's dead, his father's yeah. not there, his father doesn't exert, you know, isn't consciously um, putting up putting up hatred into the world, right, or putting up vengeance or anything. He doesn't feel anything. He's dead, but that's the power of these of, of how these emotions work that he still feels that or that that is he's still driven by that right yeah that that's still a part of that that can so that can have such a huge impact on him and again it, like on the one hand these are high stakes and like it's not like you or i have ever sought vengeance for the death of our father but these situations play out in low stakes stuff too. in just everyday life where you, you know, you're very fond of the story where fond is maybe an interesting word to use, (laughs) but you often tell the story. You often repeat the story of, um, and I don't necessarily want to butcher it. uh, The farmer who's told that uh, visit by an angel. I believe. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the, and the angel says uh, you've been, you know, you're going to be blessed. I'm going to, uh, you know, give you a gift. I'm going to give you any gift that you would want. And then the angel says, but the only condition is your uh, neighbor will get the gift twice over. And the father says, or excuse me, the farmer says, in that case, I would like you to take out one of my eyes yeah, so that he will be blinded. And it just, it, it, it gets to that thing, right? Cause it gets to the way that, you know, that anger can be so insidious and so deadly and so powerful because on the one hand you hear that and you think again that's a very high stakes thing and that's also never going to happen but if you can't think of one time in your life where in one person i should say in your life that you would have or maybe even still would 
answer that with that if someone said i'll give you anything but i'll give them twice of it and yeah. you don't think i want to suffer because i hate them so much yes then i don't know like maybe you're a better person than me i can accept that but i certainly know i've thought i've i've, I've felt that strongly well and, lacking in self-honesty maybe not a better person yeah yeah i think everyone that's a very human thing i mean it just is yeah they, these things uh these heightened emotions they're not they're common because uh, they feel good in a sense and and they're common because they're part of our humanity right um mm-hmm. you know as an aside i always get a kick when i'm doing like premarital counseling or any counseling and there's always that gross kind of american narrative that women are more emotional than uh, men right and i always mm-hmm. want to respond and i sometimes do to the men where i'm like well are you an angry person because why don't you think of that as making you an emotional person like Anger is one of the strongest emotions you can feel. And there are so many people who seem to think it's an it's a quote unquote acceptable one compared to other ones. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that's because it's universal and because it feels good. So we just don't want to acknowledge that it's a destructive fire. Right. It's it's all consuming. Uh, That's a little bit of a tangent. But, you know, but there is like there. I was thinking about it like with Audie, my daughter, where it's like, okay, so let's say I get murdered by a six finger man. Right. I can tell you that, like, the worst nightmare I can imagine is that my daughter then gives away her entire life in the pursuit of inflicting revenge, right? Because then it's not just me who's lost my life. It's also the person I cherish most who has just, like, sacrificed any hope of joy for the pursuit of something that, like you said, won't bring me back. It won't balance any scales. It It won't do anything. It doesn't actually make anything better right and that's kind of the insidiousness of it is that there's the delusion that this is fixing things this is writing things and it's not it's just costing the person with the resentment any hope of peace any life that they might have outside of the wound itself and it's perpetuating those cycles um you know i'm always fascinated by the 12 steps when they talk about the need to make amends and to own your side of the street that a critical part of it is for you to have peace of mind. It's almost like if you can't get past, if you can't buy into the idea that ending those cycles is good, then at least recognize selfishly that don't, don't you wish you thought of that person you hate less? Like, don't you wish you could Mm. just let that go and have some peace of mind? Well, you can't do that until you make an amends and release that. Right. Um, yeah. And I think there's something compelling about that. Right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you do, maybe don't, but I do. I, I have found that, if nothing more, I would like that person, and we've said this before, but I would like that person to not live rent-free inside of my head. One of my favorite quotes from Joseph Campbell is, Mythology is not a lie. Mythology is poetry. It is metaphorical. It has been well said that mythology is the penultimate truth. Penultimate because the ultimate cannot be put into words. It is beyond words, beyond images, beyond the bounding rim of the Buddhist wheel of becoming. Mythology pitches the mind beyond that rim to what can be known but not told. See, I love myths. I think myths, the stories we tell about reality, are powerful. They can capture the largest realities of our universe in ways that 
concrete descriptions, while being technically accurate and valuable in their own right, simply can't. Thus, it should be no surprise that myths play a powerful role in shaping human beings and how we navigate our world. See, I've come to realize that human beings are narrative-driven creatures. We naturally make sense of our world, our lives, relationships, environments, circumstances, and quests for meaning through the writing, creating, and telling of myths, of stories. When we teach children to know right from wrong, or to even do something as simply as pick up after themselves, we don't walk through the moral merits of it. We tell a story about it. When we think about our own lives, do we do so with a list of facts, people, places, dates, and things? Or do we internally craft a story, a narrative, with a beginning, middle, end, with struggles, heroes, villains, climaxes, and redemptions? I mean, even our societies and our communities are shaped by stories. At the core of each is a story about what it means to be a part of that community. Stories act as the central mechanism for capturing, remembering, and passing on social wisdom to each new generation that sets out into the world from each community. Core narratives that shape how people within them understand themselves, their history, their communal time together, their world, and most importantly, how best to navigate reality, to thrive or find meaning within it as they leave the village. Stories simply play a major role in our formation and our worldview, both personally and corporately. And thus, they play a pretty major role in directing our actions, how we choose to live in the world. What story we think we are living in directly impacts how we behave, how we act, how we treat ourselves and other human beings. But therein lies the problem. That is, we, as dumb monkey human beings, can be told and can come to believe stories that simply put aren't true. Not in like an objective sense, but rather in a subjective one. What I'm trying to say is not all myths or stories capture reality accurately, what we should expect from it, nor how best to navigate it. Some fail when put to the test by reality itself. They passed on a misunderstanding of history or the world that when confronted with hard reality simply crumbles. I feel like this happens often with the mythologies of American history, who we are in the world, and when that's confronted, they often collapse. Other myths and stories fail because they send people into the world ill-equipped for how it works, capturing the world as we or the person who wrote it wishes it was, without acknowledging how it actually is or what to expect from it. In seeking to pass on comfort or ideas of destiny, they leave out pain, suffering, death, failure, crucial parts of what it means to be a human being, thus sending people into the world unaware that such things exist and will happen to them, and thus they're unequipped to deal with them when they actually do. Fairy tales of finding our one true love as the meaning of this life that don't acknowledge that some people never do. Fairy tales of perseverance and destined greatness that don't acknowledge that the vast majority of people in the human race and human history will remain unseen, unremembered, insignificant, or bound by their environment and circumstances no matter how hard they strive. In such cases, these myths and stories fail to make sense of the world, and ultimately they carry a great capacity for harm. 
harm personally because those holding them get smacked in the face by those unforeseen realities, but also harm corporately when they lead people to navigate the world in destructive ways, following stories that don't actually make sense. Myths about love and its pursuit convey it as an object to be won, and, as we've seen in human history, turn people, often women, into objects of conquest. Myths about national destiny create disregard or oppression for those outside of one community's boundaries. These myths fail. They don't achieve what they were created to achieve, which is capturing reality, teaching us what to expect, and showing us how best to navigate it. But their failures highlight, I believe, what forms a good myth or a truly great story, one with real power to shape our lives and our actions. See, I believe that good myths and stories deal with reality as it is. They teach us what to expect without shying away from things like death, suffering, injustice, or failure, while at the same time teaching us how to navigate such realities in new ways. They acknowledge and prepare us to face the harshest parts of this world, but at the same time point to how we might accept and respond to them in an affirming way, in a life-giving way in a way that might make them redemptive or pathways to growth. For example, they may teach us what love is and that we should cherish it, but they also teach us how to deal with its loss or seek it in a healthy way. They teach us to recognize injustice as part of our world, but also how to stand up to it when every piece of our world screams that we shouldn't, that it's too powerful, that it will win, that it's something that we should just accept and not deal with. The best myths prepare us for reality, but also plant within us stories that we can use to navigate, and here's the cool part, potentially create meaning within and potentially change that reality. They can teach us potentially how to, in hope, be part of moving it towards a better conclusion for its story, both for ourselves and others. And in that, I believe The Princess Bride captures a good myth, a great story. A grandfather sits down with his grandson and tells him a story where much of what's depicted is reality going the way it often goes. True love is found, but also at times seemingly lost. The quest for justice is squelched by injustice seemingly having won when the six-fingered man wounds Montoya and says, you have been chasing me your whole life only to fail now. I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. How marvelous. The grandson cries, Humperdinck wins? That's not fair. So the grandfather essentially asks, who said life was fair? Over and over again, the story being passed down, being told, acknowledges the harsh but true realities of living in this world. Injustice is real. Life isn't always fair. There is suffering. Sometimes the bad guys win for a moment, while simultaneously encouraging this young boy, its audience, to never lose hope for change, for things to go a different way, for the story to have a better conclusion. Despite the odds, love that is lost can be found, and the seeking of real love is worthwhile in and of itself, regardless of where it goes. In the experience of suffering and death, there can be hope for renewal and resurrection, a hope that can help the characters in this story accept such hardships and not despair within them. 
In the face of injustice's apparent victory, it is possible, dare say crucial, to maintain one's integrity. And the good fight is worthwhile, even if it hurts. Because such evil does not get the last word of the story, so long as there are always people who live in a different one, and who do such things. The myth, the story at the heart of the Princess Bride, is one that doesn't shy away from how this world works but simultaneously dares to reject that our response to such hardships is an apathetic, passive acceptance that it has to stay that way. It's one that teaches the grandson what to expect from this life, but also that he should hope for a better world and a better ending for its story. An ending that it invites him to help write with his own life as he leaves his house, if he's willing to remember and embody the characters who succeeded in navigating their trials and tribulations well. It's a good myth, a great story, one that we can imagine the grandson being told over and over again and leaving his childhood with. And then down the road, using its principles, its characters, its symbols to navigate his own reality, his own journeys of love and loss, beauty and suffering, failure and hope, injustice and vindication, death and renewal, applying them and acting in them and seeing that the story plays out well. And if he chooses to, passing it on to the next generation of sick kids in bed on the other side of a life well-lived, guided by a true myth written and used well. Holy crap, Mike. I mean, that's just, it's just music to, to our ears. We're both <laughs> nerds who are in all of this narrative stuff and all of this going back to Joseph Campbell and to narrative theology even. And I mean, yeah, so obviously I'm, I'm incredibly there for that. And I, I do think this movie is such a, such a fascinating example of the ways that narratives come to define us. Right. And the stories yeah. come to define, define what we look like. Um, I'm, I don't know if you have any specific questions. The, the one thing, I, I think everything you said was great, and, and this is possibly a tangent, but I, I think it's kind of related because, you know, I, I think another example in this movie of just the power of, of stories and narrative in this context, I it's a little bit understated. It might even be a little bit, I don't know, cheesy or something, but the last line of the movie, right, the grandfather's leaving um, – and the son and then the grandson says, Hey, grandpa, grandpa, maybe you can come back tomorrow and read it for me again. And the grandfather says, as you wish. And it's this lovely little moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it also signals that what you're talking about, right. That it's the language that we use to communicate these things. Uh, we get from stories because yeah. on its own, as you wish, whatever, but because of that shared experience with this story, it takes on all of these other layers, communicating affection and warmth and love and everything like that. Um, I just think that's another example, but you're right. Like, you know, over and over again, I think in this movie, you see characters interacting with the narratives that they're being given and, and with the, you know, how things are supposed to be on the basis of a story. Um, the other great example of that, uh, just, and, then I'll, and then I'll shut up, but the other great example of that is how mad the grandson gets when he thinks the story's going wrong. Right? Yeah. 
yeah. when he he's you know and, and when he interrupts him he demands to know who's going to kill Humperdinck and and the grandpa says no one he lives and the and he's so upset at that because that's not how the narrative is supposed to be he senses that he senses that there's something wrong with this story if it doesn't play out following these beats and he's getting that from this cultural osmosis from the way these things are handed down and there's and it's funny that it's almost an injustice to him that things wouldn't work out the way that he believes they're supposed to and where that applies to storytelling that also applies to life that yeah when things in life don't match up the stories and narratives we were given or being told or telling ourselves we have the same response right we have the same visceral well this is stupid and and that's not right and and you can't even say why it's not right other than that's not the story i was handed and it's not it, it doesn't really make sense but it but it does it's how we think about ourselves and think about the world so i'm sorry that's kind of a tangent but but it's what i was thinking about with how you're talking about you know the the ways that we take these narratives and that we take these stories yeah absolutely you know um there's an author I mentioned before, Stanley Harawas, who you mentioned narrative theology. That's kind of his thing. And he just talks a lot about storied communities and, you know, these communities that have a story, a shared story that they believe that they live in and use to navigate their world. And I always love it because he talks a lot about Watership Down, right? The cute book about rabbits, which is another good example of the hero's journey, but also the power of, of myth, right? I hate to interrupt, but you, you did say cute book. It is also on the list of, if I'm thinking of the right one, uh, cute that becomes very, very serious and horrifying at a certain point. Am I yeah. thinking of the right well, one? Well, rabbits go okay. out into the world and things happen. <laughs> but Yeah. 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 <laughs> but the, uh, right, it's, the, it's a pretty straightforward book. But okay. Yeah. But like the power of that book is it does really capture the importance of stories and this sort of stuff. Because you know, the rabbits are taught all these myths about religious figures and all these stories that are i mean they're all i keep they're just myths the classical sense of the myths when they're kids right and so they'll have one about you know uh, and i don't know if they're gods i can't remember the story but you know there's like a fox and and it gets in conflict with this other mythological rabbit figure and the rabbit succeeds by running away or running across the world or something and it's so easy to be like well what a dumb story but the whole point is that it prepares them the world has foxes in it and rabbits cannot beat the fox and the appropriate response to a fox coming at you is to run right and you kind of see what makes that book that story so powerful is it, it really does a good job of showing that play out with those rabbit characters over and over and over again where it's it's not these stories don't give us the answers but they give us kind of what to expect how reality works and then they give us pathways to decide and we can remember them so quickly that's the powerful part too right they yeah. become ingrained yeah. and and that also makes them so dangerous right when it's a broken story and you are playing out unreality in response to reality itself right a story about fearing something other than yourself and naturally going straight to attack like that's where a lot of evil comes from is people given mm. these horrible myths but it also captures just the power of them in our lives for good, where there is this way where by being taught a such a simple narrative, uh, you know, not being told, hey, by the way, the fox has teeth and they're made out of calcium. And if they pierce your flesh, this is the effect that that's going to have. 
But instead of, it's just like something that pops into my head immediately, which is, I'm a rabbit, it's a fox. Uh, what did the, how the story go? Oh, I should run, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going with that other than just to talk about their, their, they have this immense potential because of the way we're wired to get stuck in us and to, to actually be a, a good source for us learning about the world before um, we even know we're doing that. And then to start learning different approaches that we can have to navigating it successfully from there. So I don't know. I just yeah. kind of babbled. But. I know. I, if, and if I, I'm there for all of that, and I'm also acutely aware that we, we have the potential to geek out on this and, and, and talk for another two hours on it, which we should probably avoid. But I did want to go off of that a little bit too, because this is what's so cool about stories. So in the same way that if you think about memorization, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, a melody helps you so much with that. A song helps you so much. Almost no one remembers the alphabet, uh, A, B, C, D, E, just saying it when you're a kid, you learn it by a song. And the song is what brings that back to your mind. And I think in the same way, you know, if, if you were, and you think back to prehistory to before writing, and which is most of the time that we our brains develop. We're very, we're in the very beginning stages of having, you know, uh, consistent communication. Things that that aren't just oral history and stuff like that. And so, if you think about that time, you know, lessons, quote unquote, or just you know, hey, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. You don't remember that. You don't think about that. You don't dwell upon that. But if I give you a story, if I give you a A to B, you you it becomes part of you. It becomes something that you, you know, place yourself into. Your brain works yeah. on it and, and interacts with it. And and so in a sense, it, it's completely logical why, um, or I shouldn't say logical. It makes a lot of sense why stories do become such an important part of how we see ourselves in the world. But then catapulting off what you were saying too there is that that push the tension because obviously that can be a force for tremendous good but can also create really damaging or uh you know negative narratives that that we let that you know let us have this negative impact on the people and relationships around us or even on ourselves um and i guess i don't know you know from from a spiritual standpoint i guess maybe there's value in trying to notice how those things impact you, right? Yeah. Um, kind of getting back to the anger thing we were talking about earlier where, you know, there's value in examining your own strong emotions and seeing where they come from. In the same way, I think it's it's just there's merit to, to noticing where something may be actually true and where it may be you interpreting the world with a narrative that you were given at one point. Yeah. And weighing that narrative against, you know, the, the things that are being presented to you. Um, and sometimes I, I think if you do that exercise, you find that there are things that aren't really true, that are that are narratives that, you know, were you developed or were given to you or whatever that don't really describe what's happening around you properly or maybe need modification or something. Um, but I, I, that, that's why I'm so invested in all of this because I, I think that really gets at the heart of how we interpret the world, not necessarily facts and figures, but stories and characters, I think just resonate with people so much more. Well, I think that's, I think what you're getting at is the purpose of spirituality in a lot of ways, which is, yeah, you know, one of the, what spirituality is not 
is I was given a story which is about things in the past that I can cognitively affirm. Beliefs, doctrines, yada, yada, yada. It's about you being given a story and then you going on a journey of life in which you eventually get to the point in which you question that story, come to understand that story, make it your own, and then live it out in the world, right? And I think in that process, if there isn't some shedding, if there isn't some cutting loose of what you've been given to find the real story of the world that you are living within that you that you believe is true that you believe accurately accurately captures reality right um then you're not doing the work of spirituality like if you're not maturing to the point where it's not just something you know but it's a world that you live in and you are thus using it to take part in furthering it towards whatever that story says the goal is right then i'm not sure you're Mm. doing it right you know actually i'm not saying not sure you're not doing it right. You're missing the point, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, believing that our world is moving towards something redemptive or healed should, as we go on the journey of our lives, if we are doing spirituality fully and doing the work, should lead us to taking part in ma- bringing that, what we believe the end of the story is, to the present moment by taking part in healing, renewal, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's that's the danger that comes when you never actually sit with the stories that you've been given you don't deconstruct any of them you don't question them you don't apply them to your world and see if they actually make sense we talk about those with deconstruction all the time the danger is that you never actually enter them and become part of them and then enact them in the world so you not only don't know if they're true or good but you also never find yourself within them and then help bring them towards whatever you believe its conclusion is and i think that's just that's a tragedy Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Mike and I have each prepared a final question for each other, which we'll do in just a moment. But before that, we want to let you know on next episode, we will be discussing Pacific Rim, the 2013 Guillermo del Toro masterpiece, masterpiece of action filmmaking. I'm very excited for this, Mike. This is a truly stupid movie that... Is hell yeah arguably the most fun movie ever made i am i am robots but fighting monsters yeah yeah i'm in leave the plot at the door but i'm just telling you i am in i am yep you 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 had me let's go i i don't need a plot i'm let's go okay man i'm 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 here for it i have a bigger i have a bigger tv now too that's that that's a great big big tv movie um Okay, final questions. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go ahead. Why not? I'm the host, so I get to do that. So, Mike, tomorrow you have to face a trial. Would hmm. you rather sword fight with Anigo, mm-hmm. hand-to-hand fight with Fezig, or battle of wits with Vassini? And let's assume, because that one doesn't really make sense, let's assume that uh, Vassini poisons one of the goblets and you have to decide which one so so which of those three do you are you going going to engage in tough question um i own a lot of swords from going to medieval fairs so oh, i forgot that have that going does, for me but here's the question does, does owning those swords does owning those swords in any way translate into ability to use said swords you know we don't know until we try okay but i'm guessing so, i'm guessing not 
So yeah, I'm gonna check him yeah. off. Um, I'm I am the strongest man alive, but I'm a pacifist, so I'm okay. not gonna fight Andre the Giant. Uh, but I'd win. Um, yeah, and I actually think Vicini's kind of an idiot, so I'm gonna take that one. <laughs> I actually don't disagree. It is it is more worrying imagining him poisoning one of the goblets, and you have to pick which one. But I I, I don't disagree. I think Vasidi would be fairly easy to trip up. Uh, yeah, and also that, it's that a, would also it's be a my go-to. Fifty fifty shot, and I don't have that with either of those other two fights. So you know, you know, Anigo's here's that. That's not a bad point. I will say Anigo is a very honorable person. I'm sure you could just like give up and be like, "Hey, have mercy," and he'd be like, "Okay." Uh, I don't cool. think that's true. He yeah. seems like a killer. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> he was prepared Fair to enough. kill the masked man, and he liked him. He probably wouldn't like me. So. It's not not good. Well, well, fair. That's 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 hard to argue with. Maybe I guess Vasini's the one. We could best Vasini. I believe in us. Yeah, we'll just jump him. Um, <laughs> so, well, it's a two part question. I want first, what is the most memorable fairy tale that you were told as a kid, and now apply yeah. it to a current trial in your life? Would it help you navigate the world? Huh. That's a good question. Um most memorable fairy tale and in fairy tale because like i could get a little cheeky and be like star wars technically yeah. a kind of a fairy tale that's but fine. would you accept yeah, that that's fine yeah okay yeah in that in that case i think that's the obvious one um you know just straight up i'll, I'll just say the fourth movie because that is the most encapsulated fairy tale story yeah, uh, just pick the hero's journey and does, yeah it helps <laughs> <laughs> and does that movie help me with any current trial in my life? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, it, it does. Let me think. I have to. It, it just feels. Let me really think about this now. I'm kind See, of questioning is, you as a though, spiritual person because that movie is literally just Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. And if that doesn't, doesn't have anything help, to say, I'm shocked. I mean, I'm just a little caught off guard, but okay. You're the first human being in Mike's, human history Mike's like, who doesn't relate Mike's to the like, hero's story. <laughs> Mike's like, why are we doing this movie or doing this podcast together? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's great. Uh, at the end, Luke has to. Uh, release his desire. Actually, this is fairly easy, and I'm kind of shocked it took me this long to get there. Me too. At the very end in the trench run, Luke has to let go of his desire to control and trust in the Force, and that is such a clear one-to-one of the way that we engage with how we live our lives, where you you want to try to control things, you want to try to have this overt influence, but the true power that you have over the world around you is in your ability to be present and to release your grasp of those things. Uh, man, we got to do Star Wars. We're going to do Star Wars. It's going to be a big deal. Uh, we'll talk for six hours. It'll be great. We'll lose a lot of listeners. Um, that, <laughs> but we'll like it. Because that moment still, we'll like it. That's all that matters. That moment still gets me, actually. Like when the music yeah. swells and, and he says, "Let use the force, let go, Luke. And he pushes the thing and he's, and they're like, what are you doing? You turn off the computers. And he says, nothing, I'm all right. And you're like, mm, man, mm. that's so good. Mm. Oh man, I'm excited for Star Wars. Let's just do Star Wars next week. Why not? Whatever, man. <laughs> so no, my fairy tale. We gotta, we gotta save that. We gotta save that. Yeah, what's my yours? fairy? My fairy tale is Pulp Fiction, and uh, 
It does. Was all, it helps me was navigate. Was all of this leading to that? My, was that the bit this whole time? I did see it at 13 or whatever. So, you know what? I, I'll tell you this, John. I have never ended up in the basement of a pawn shop being mm. assaulted by two sadists and a gimp. So, that, well, looks like yeah. I've navigated the world pretty well by that little tale. Well, on that enigmatic note, I think it's time to end. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, as always, I'm Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet. Goodbye. We'll, uh, see you on. I wasn't going to throw it to you, and we will see you guys on the next episode. <laughs> Every time.